0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day, uh, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to give you a special welcome, especially if you're just visiting with us this morning, if you're catching us online. We're just so glad that you're here with us today. If you are just visiting with us, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians that we are calling Becoming Who We Are. So it's an idea we're going to talk about a lot in the message today. So I'm going to read our passage and pray for us, and then we will jump right in. So 1 Corinthians 5, verses—oh, actually, we're going to do the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part— Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and this chance to come together to worship you through song and through prayer and through hearing your word um, and through taking communion afterwards. Lord, we ask that you would be present with us this morning, that you would help us to hear from you, that we would understand um, what it is that you want us to take away from this uh, passage today, that you would help us to have open hearts and open minds um, to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we kind of jumped straight into the passage. So what's going on here? If you've been following along in the series in 1 Corinthians so far, we've been talking a lot about these celebrity leaders that the Corinthians have been following, these kind of like influencers that they've been very enamored with. And then we sort of feel like we're making a pretty big shift here, uh, and Paul starts to talk about some of these issues that he sees in the Corinthian church. Uh, And today, the issue that we're going to talk about is a man who is sleeping with his stepmom. So who needs a catchy sermon intro when this is what the passage is, right? Grabs your attention uh, and gets you to, it sounds like a soap opera, honestly. And so Paul is saying to them, look, even the people who are living in the rest of Corinth around you think this is bad. And remember, Corinth is like the the party city of the ancient world. So things like prostitution and brothels, all of that was totally socially acceptable to them. But even the non-Christians in Corinth are like, yeah, we kind of draw the line at sleeping with your stepmom. And as the letter goes on, Paul is going to continue to address some of these different issues in the the Corinthian church. So this is one of them. He's going to talk about a few other things as we continue on in this series but as Joel talked about in the very first message, uh, for Paul, all of these issues that the church are facing, is not, they're not random. They are all connected to this underlying idea of being called to live as holy, set-apart people. So if you remember, in the very first chapter, as Paul greets the Corinthians in this letter, I want you to listen to what he says again. This is chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is crazy. Even though the church is having all sorts of problems, including this man who's sleeping with his stepmom, Paul still says, God has made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. Not he will make you holy if you stop doing all of these things that I'm about to address in this letter. He says you are holy, present tense, because of what Jesus has already done in his life, death, and resurrection. So Paul says you've already been made holy. Now I want you to live like it. I want you to become who you really are, which is kind of our big idea for this whole sermon series. But the thing that I find so interesting about this section of the letter is that Paul's biggest issue here is actually not this man who is uh, sleeping with a stepmom. This is the thing that gets our attention. It's the thing we like to focus in on. But Paul's bigger issue is actually with the church and its attitude towards this relationship. Paul takes more issue with the church, not just because they're allowing it, but because they're actually proud of what's going on. He says they're even bragging about it. And many scholars think that the Corinthians were, were so full of themselves, they thought they were so wise, right? We talked a lot about wisdom and power. They thought they had all of the right answers, that they had moved beyond kind of these cultural norms, They had moved, they thought they were above it, that they were enlightened, and that this was actually a good thing that this was happening because it meant that they were so enlightened, they were kind of past this point of needing to follow cultural norms or even the way that God has laid out to live as holy. And this is Paul's big concern. He focuses in on the Corinthian church, on the community around this man. And understand that we really have to remember that they lived in a more collectivist type of a society. We live in a very individualistic society. And that means that they emphasized how your individual actions impact the broader group that you're a part of. So they viewed everyone as together instead of kind of the way we do as everyone having their own separate lives and separate um, meanings and identities. They understood that everything they did was going to affect the people that they were connected to. And if you were here in our sin sermon series just a few uh, sermon series back, we did a whole message kind of on the effects of sin and how it can corrode everything around us, nature, our environment, our community, because it's something that has an impact on the rest of us. So while Paul does have things to say to this man, he actually has a lot more to say to this community. And the big point for today that I want us to really focus in on is that if we want to become who we are in Jesus, we need one another. We need accountability. In order to live as if we are truly God's holy people, we need each other's help. It's true for the Corinthian church, and we're going to talk about how this is still true for us today. So what do I mean by accountability? I looked up the the dictionary definition because I felt like that was a good place to start. Uh, And here's what Merriam-Webster had to say. It said, an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or to account for one's actions. And the example that the dictionary gave, you know, like if you were to say like, can you use that in a sentence? The little phrase that they gave was, public officials lacking accountability. (laughs) And in our world right now, I think we really like the idea of accountability for big public leaders. And I think this is a good thing, right? We should hold our leaders accountable. But when it comes to accountability in other areas, we can tend, as a culture, to shy away from that. At least in areas that we might deem as personal, right? We're all for people being held accountable for things that they say in public, maybe even things they say online, or maybe things they said online 10 years ago, but have resurfaced. But people are less excited about the idea of holding people accountable for things in their present uh, personal lives, like their romantic or sexual lives, or how they spend their time or their money. For these types of things, we say, follow your heart, right? Do what seems right to you. No one should be able to tell you how to live your life. Which ultimately, once you start to really think about it, we're kind of inconsistent in which things we say are personal and uh, should be kind of left to your own decision. And which things we say people should be held accountable for. Right? Take voting for example. Not that long ago, it used to be really taboo to talk about who you voted for. right? You couldn't ask someone who they voted for or bring up that topic so casually in conversation. It was considered kind of rude to do that. Uh, but now I think Especially among younger people, it's a common conversation that happens and honestly something that a lot of people want to know in order to understand the other person and what they're thinking about how they view the world. So the things that we think are personal and the things we think should be held accountable for kind of change over time. And sexuality is another area of life where the degree to which accountability is valued has really fluctuated a lot in history. I mean, if you just look at America in somewhat recent years, we've seen where there are times where the culture in general has valued high accountability around this and had a lot of thoughts about how sex should be used, like in the 40s and 50s. And then there are times where societally it's been very low, right? Like that time of free love and the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. And then even in recent years, we've seen there to be a, a big value on sexual freedom but we've also seen a pushback against that with things like the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement. So this idea of like what should be held accountable for and how do we do that in, in our personal lives is one that changes and it varies in different times and different cultures and in different countries. But Paul reminds us that what we should be held accountable for as Christians doesn't change. We need to be set apart as God's holy people And we need to take seriously the idea of sin and how we can hold one another accountable for it. So he goes on to describe what he thinks accountability should look like in this situation. So in verse 2, you'll notice he says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put this man out of your fellowship? So I want you to right away notice the attitude that Paul has here. It's not angry. It's not vindictive. not with an attitude of superiority. He says, you should have been mourning. You should have been grieved by the fact that this man is in a place where he is committing this sin. That should hurt you as someone in in your community. Because when someone in our community is struggling and not living out the holy call that God has given us, it should be painful for us because we should care about them and we should care about our community and about God's call to holiness. And then he goes on uh, in verse five, he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Again, I want you to notice the attitude here, right? The purpose of this accountability is meant to be remedial. I know the language sounds really intense, but when you dig into what he's saying, you see handing him over to Satan, most scholars believe he's saying, let him go and do what he wants right? Release him to live life however he wants because pushing the lifestyle he's, pursuing the lifestyle he's living is going to eventually lead him to destruction. But hopefully the hope, the attitude behind this is that it will actually help him realize that what he's pursuing isn't fulfilling to him and it will actually help him realize it's not what he wants and turn back to God. The purpose of this accountability is for him to have an opportunity to repent and to come back. Uh, if In Alcohol Anonymous, they often talk about the idea of like, hitting rock bottom, if you've heard that expression. And for some people, not all, but for some, uh, when they're in addiction, they have, before they feel ready to seek treatment, they need to hit some sort of all-time low to sort of realize like, the point at which they're in in their life and how badly they need help. Again, not all people experience this, and you can certainly seek treatment earlier, and we encourage people to. But for some people, hitting that low point helps them realize, I need to make a change in my life. Something has got to be different, and I need to get help in order to do that. And honestly, that sounds pretty similar to what's happening in this situation. From the way that Paul talks about this in the letter, most scholars believe that the Corinthians have already discussed this situation at least once before in other letters and in other ways. And it's been an ongoing problem. They've talked about it, and nothing has changed. And now Paul is saying, this sin is having an impact on the rest of the community and we need to do something about it. And the thing he suggests is to just let the man go and do what he wants. But at the same time, to not let him continue to call himself a member of the church if he isn't truly living that way. Now, at this point in studying the passage, I think it's really tempting to want to make a bunch of rules about how church discipline should be handled uh, at all times and in all places. We want like to we wanna try and use this passage as a roadmap of how we should handle every situation of sin in the church. And I just want to pump the brakes on that idea for a little bit. Uh, most people who, most scholars, really caution against that. And if you think about it, in this letter, Paul does not say... When you enact church discipline, do it like this. He's not setting up some kind of, you know, law for all time. There are other places in scripture that do address things like this that way. But that's not what's happening here. This is a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church addressing a very specific situation that we ultimately don't know that much about. We've got one side of the letter, one side of the phone call. So we don't actually know everything that's happening here. What we do know is that there are things that have happened up to this point. In other letters, there have been conversations, uh, and we, we know that there is something, there's an ongoing conversation here. But what we don't know is how those conversations went. We don't know how long this man has been following Jesus. We don't know how the sin is impacting the rest of the community. But we do know that he is a man who's claiming to be all in on following Jesus— And yet, he refuses to change his sinful ways. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know, you can't have it both ways. This man is fooling himself if he thinks he can boast about his sin, not listen to the concerns of his community, and still actively follow Jesus. Yes, we're always going to have sin in our lives, right? Until Jesus comes back and makes everything completely new, we are all going to have sin that we struggle with. But you can't be aware of your sin and choose to actively move towards it, and actively move toward Jesus at the same time. They're in opposite directions, sort of like the expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Paul doesn't want the community to enable this man to continue to think he can do both. He can pursue his sin in full force, and pursue God in full force. They're just in opposite directions that can't happen. And if you remember from, again, going back to that first sermon that Joel preached on holiness, he talked about uh, how God's holiness is used as an example. He used the example uh, from the prophet Isaiah when he experiences God's holiness. So in this passage in the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah gets to really experience God. He gets to be in his presence, which is something that rarely happens. And as a result of that, an angel comes and does this really strange thing where he touches a coal to Isaiah's lips, and this removes the sin from Isaiah. So as we see is God's holiness and sin, they cannot coexist. They can't be in the same place together. So a result of seeking God's presence, of being with him, is that our sin needs to be dealt with. And the more that we seek God and the more we want to be like him, the more we have a desire to get rid of that sin in our life because they're just incompatible, moving in opposite directions. And here's the good news, is that God wants to dwell with us. Even though we are sinful, he seeks us out. Even though we're not worthy of his holiness, he comes to us through his son Jesus and through his spirit. We don't have to become holy before God will come to be with us. We become holy because God wants to be with us. And unfortunately for this man in Corinth, it seems like he has experienced that at some point. He's known Jesus. He's experienced that that God came to him. And now he's turning away from it. And he's refusing to accept accountability for his actions. And so Paul feels like this situation is affecting the ability of the Corinthian church to really live out that new holy identity. And he wants them to become who they already are, and the situation is hindering them in, in some way from doing that. And we know all of this because we see Paul uses uh, an analogy in this section uh, about bread, of all things. But we'll, we'll get to how it all works. So picking back up uh, in verse 6, he says, Don't you know that a, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, what is he getting at here? Uh, The translation that we use talks about yeast, right? Because when we think of bread and how bread rises, our minds probably automatically go to yeast. But that's actually not how they were making bread at that point in time. It was actually a lot more similar to the process of making sourdough. So how many of you over uh, quarantine tried making sourdough? Anybody else? Okay, I've got a few. Um, I tried, but gluten-free sourdough is no joke. <laughs> um, one of mine turned out okay from the outside, but I think it, once I cut into it, I think uh, Paul Hollywood would have had some, some words for me about it being underdone. Um, but... Basically how you make sourdough, if you didn't try it over, over COVID, is that you have like a sourdough starter, which is what I have this picture of this jar here. And you mix some water and flour and you let it ferment. And over time, I'm simplifying this and probably butchering how you would actually, how this actually works scientifically, But that starter is then what helps the bread rise. So when you make your bread dough, you take some of the starter and you mix it with the other bread ingredients and then you let it sit and it rises and then you bake your dough. And so the word that Paul is using here is actually not yeast, it's leaven. And that word would be similar to our idea of like a sourdough starter. So you could think he's saying a little sourdough starter raises the whole batch of bread. And the thing with leaven and sourdough is that you keep it around, right? And you use it again and again over time. You have to feed it. When I was trying to get mine started, you have to, like, feed it multiple times a day. And uh, it felt like I had, like, a Tamagotchi pet or something again, where it was like, okay, I have to feed you now and again and again. So you keep it around, and you continue to feed it, and it continues to be able to be used to help make your bread rise. Now, I found a picture, I took a picture of the sourdough starter that I have. I will confess to you, I have not used that thing in over a year. So it's just been sitting in the back of my fridge. um, And although I couldn't see any visible mold or anything, uh, it's pretty gross to think that that's just been chilling in the back of my fridge, fermenting and growing who knows what. And the picture that Paul is painting here is one of getting rid of the old leaven, the old sourdough starter, and starting with a new one, which is actually something that the Israelites did on Passover in the Old Testament. So he's referring back to something that happened to the Israelites in their history. So a quick summary of what happened. Back in Moses' time, when the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt, right before God brought them out of slavery, right, did the whole parting of the Red Seas and everything, he called them to get a lamb and to make a feast and to put blood from the lamb over the door and to eat unleavened bread, because he was going to rescue them the next day, and they needed to be ready to leave. So they didn't have time to wait around for their bread to rise. So they were making it unleavened, without the sourdough starter. And ever since then, they've been called to do the same thing every year, to remember how God rescued them out of Egypt. And every year, they're supposed to get rid of the leaven and start over. And one scholar actually pointed out how this was an act of remembrance to remember what God had done for them. And it was also probably a health provision from God because over time, especially, you know, they didn't have refrigerators and it couldn't just stick it in the back like I do, uh, these things can get kind of gross. They can grow bacteria and mold and all sorts of other things. And honestly, this is the reminder I need to go and just toss mine because I'm not using that again. But the imagery is one of God rescuing us and bringing us into new life. And getting rid of the old starter is a sign of that new thing that God is doing. It was this reminder to them of the new community that God had created when he rescued them out of Egypt. And for the Corinthians, they've just experienced something very similar in the way that they have been rescued from their old life of slavery to sin to new life in Jesus. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. He died for us. He shed his blood for us so that we could have new life, that we could be made holy, be set apart. And because of that, we need to get rid of the old sourdough starter we need to get rid of our old way of living and start fresh. So it's a really, Paul's kind of going for a pretty complex metaphor here, but you, I want to really see if we can see the main point, right? He's saying, this man is living in his old ways the way of life he had before he was made new in Jesus. And that's not okay because we've been made new and we need to leave behind our old sinful patterns and move forward to new life. We need a clean break. So imagine this. If I cleaned out my sourdough starter jar and started over, but then as I was making my my new loaf of bread, I put a big old scoop of the moldy, gross, year-old sourdough starter right in the middle of the bread dough that would be pretty problematic, right? I'm not, I don't want to eat that kind of bread. And so note what Paul says here in verse 7. He says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul's saying you've already been made new. This is who you are. Now just throw away the old starter. Live as a new creation as you really are because Jesus has sacrificed himself for you so that you could be made new. Now live in that identity. It's not saying you have to earn the identity by changing your behavior, but adding in the old ways you practiced before knowing Jesus just doesn't make any sense. It's like adding the old moldy sourdough starter into the new loaf of bread. And because they recognized the connectedness of the community, how one person's actions would impact the rest of the community, he saw this man's actions as old leaven, old sourdough starter. And the church needed to start new if it wanted to live in its holy calling. Now again, he's not saying to treat every situation like this. But what he is saying is that we all need to put off our old ways. We all need to clean out the sourdough starter and live as new people. And Paul actually talks about this in other letters that he writes to churches as well. We see the same idea in Ephesians 4, where similar uh, topic of throwing off the old self and putting on a new way of being. In Ephesians 4, verse 21, he says, "'Since you have heard about Jesus "'and have learned the truth that comes from him, "'throw off your old sinful nature "'and your former way of life, "'which is corrupted by lust and deception.'" Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy." There's that word again. So this is a process that the Spirit works in us. Uh, It's called sanctification. We can't do it solely on our own power. The Spirit has to be uh, the one doing it. And yet there's still an activeness that we are called to. We have to throw off our old way of living, and put on something new. Just like we change clothes every day, we have to be consistently turning away from sin, away from our old lives, and toward Jesus. Uh, There's a a scholar named D.A. Carson, and he says, we don't drift towards holiness. And it's something that's just always stuck with me. Because if anything, it's the opposite, right? We naturally are gonna drift towards our old way of living because it's familiar, because it's what we know, because it's comfortable. And our sinful nature is always going to try to pull us back like a current towards that old way of life. And the world around us is going to influence us to try and live in that way of the world. So if we want to live as we really are, to live holy like God has made us, we have to actively choose to move towards holiness as a response to what God has done in our lives. And we often frame this idea of sanctification or growing in holiness as a solo project, right? You're working on yours, I'm working on mine, she's working on hers. But the truth is that this is actually a group project. Whether you like it or not, we are in all of this together. So that means that you get to hold me accountable for my actions, and I have to hold you accountable for yours. That's the way that God designed it, is for us to work together together as we actively try to not drift away from holiness, but to move towards it. So here's a question for you. Uh, If you're talking with someone, and you notice that they have spinach or some other piece of food stuck in their teeth, how many of you tell the person that you're talking to? (laughs) Wow, we are definitely a bunch of Midwesterners. Um, I sometimes do. I will admit I'm not always the best at it. Sometimes I don't. But if you were to ask me if I wanted someone to tell me that I had food in my teeth, the answer is always yes, right? I would want to know if I'm walking around and smiling and talking with a big hunk of spinach hanging out in my teeth. I would rather take the two seconds of embarrassment of you telling me, someone I know, someone I know cares about me, telling me that I have food in my teeth than the embarrassment of getting home later and looking in the mirror and realizing, I've been spending my whole day out with food stuck in my teeth. And the truth is that we all have spiritual spinach stuck in our teeth. We all have ways that we can grow in holiness. And there are probably some in your own life that you're aware of and that you're working on. And there are always going to be things that you're unaware of as well. Because we're human and we have blind spots and there are going to be things that we miss. But the people around us they're they're aware, (laughs) whether you want them to be or not. Uh, If people are close to you in your life, they know those areas that you can work on. And we are there together, part of our community is meant to be so that we can help one another grow in those ways, in the ways we're aware of and in the ways that we're not. So if accountability doesn't always look, sometimes it will, but doesn't always look like this passage in 1 Corinthians, then what, what else could it look like? I was thinking about this, um, and I just had a few ideas that I've experienced or things that have come to my mind over time. It might look like asking questions when someone does something or says something that doesn't totally line up with the ways of God. It could be as simple as just saying, oh, okay, tell me more about that, right? That's not—it's a simple thing that you can ask— that can give people a chance to talk more about it and you can join that discussion and talk about how we can grow together. Or maybe it's just something as like, oh, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? Or tell me more about how you got to that that line of thinking. Or maybe it looks like reflecting back to the person what you're seeing in their life, like a mirror, right? If you go back to the spinach and teeth thing, right? A mirror is gonna show you where that is. And if we can be mirrors for one another, then we can help each other grow in holiness. So maybe it's something like, hey, you know, lately I've noticed that you've seemed really down or that your mood has just been really kind of up and down. And it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems like maybe there's a connection between, you know, how things go at work and how you're, you know, showing up in the lives of people around you. Have you noticed that? Do you do you think that maybe there's something there? Then give them a chance to answer and, and then ask another follow-up question, right? You can just be a mirror and say, hey, you may not realize this, but this is how you're showing up to other people, and I want you to know so that you can we can talk about it or that I can help you if there's any ways that you, can, you need assistance. And sometimes it does look like being really straightforward with someone. As I thought about this, uh, an experience came to mind uh, in a previous ministry role I was meeting with someone who told me that they were emotionally involved with a coworker who was still married, and she told me, "It's okay. They're getting divorced, they're like in the process. I know that he's going to leave her, so it's okay that I'm already involved in, with him in this situation." And in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit nudging me to be really direct and to strongly say, "That's not okay, and you need to stop." And so we need to be able to listen to the Spirit to rely on the Holy Spirit and all of us as we have these conversations with one another, to use discernment, to use wisdom, and to know when to ask the question, when to be really direct, and to know that it's okay, you're probably gonna mess those up sometimes. You might switch them up. You might be not as direct as you need to be. You might be more direct than you need to be. But we need to be willing to forgive one another because ultimately our goal is to help each other grow uh, and not have us, be a church community walking around with spinach stuck in our teeth. So the last thing I want you to kind of think about as you think about what would it look like for me to help uh, hold other people in my community accountable, or what would it look like for me to receive accountability from someone else in my life? And I want you to remember the order, right? Jesus first, then accountability. Jesus does his work on the cross and in the resurrection to make us holy, set-apart people. From there, we're called to live out this new life. But none of this is possible without Jesus himself and the sacrifice he made and his, the victory that he accomplished. And th- this is also, I think, why Paul goes on to say, don't worry about holding people outside of the church accountable. Right? For one thing, it just doesn't make sense. They haven't experienced Jesus' love and the new life that he brings. So why would we expect him to act as if they have? He says, focus first on Jesus, right? Share the gospel with them, share the good news of who Jesus is first, before you're gonna try to hold them accountable to anything. Because without him, you don't have anything to hold them accountable to. And he says, don't worry about the rest, right? He says, when you try to judge others, you're actually playing God. (laughs) You're trying to take his role. He says, I will take care of that. You just focus on yourself and on your community. It's what I've called you to do when it comes to accountability. And I think this was where we get really tripped up because it's a lot easier to judge the people outside of these walls than it is to have the uncomfortable conversations with people inside it. And so even when you're, but even when you're talking with someone in the church and holding them accountable, remember Jesus comes first. The good news of who Jesus is is the first thing we need to be mindful of. With the people who already know Jesus, they need that reminder, right? They need to be called into that life of living as holy, set-apart people. I Think about how much it impacts me when someone calls out something in my life and says, hey, I can really see this in you, right? I can see that you are, um, you know, fill in the blank of some kind of like compliment that you're looking for, right? Like I can see that you're really great at welcoming people, right? Then the next Sunday that you're on the welcome team, you're gonna be thinking, yeah, I'm really good at this. I need to live this out, right? I need to to follow through on that. And I think when we start with reminding people, hey, this is who you already are in Christ. You are holy because of him. Now I'm I'm calling you to live like that. I'm calling you to, to step into that and live that out. I think that's much more powerful than showing up and just trying to enforce a bunch of rules or say, hey, you can't do that because it's wrong, right? It's much more motivating to hear who you already are and to step into living that way. So I know that these conversations can be uncomfortable. I know that the idea of accountability can be uncomfortable, but I think truly this is the way that God has put us in community together so that we can move towards holiness uh, and live that out as a community, And as we continue um, in our service this morning, we're actually going to take communion and have a time to worship together. And I love that we take communion every week because it gives us those reminders, right? First, it gives us the reminder of the newness that we have in Jesus through the death of the Passover lamb, right? We're remembering that. We're celebrating getting rid of the old sourdough starter and starting our new life. But it's also a reminder that we are a community, right? We all take from the same loaf. We all come together to take communion. It's not just an individual act, but it's something we do as a community to remind ourselves that this is a community project. Following Jesus is something that we are meant to do, not on our own, but as uh, a church together. So as we take communion this morning, uh, I invite you to think about those things, whether that's thinking about... um, conversations you might need to have with someone in in your community or ways that you may need to invite someone to hold you accountable to live in those holy ways that God has already set out for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to head into that time uh, of communion and worship. There's also going to be someone in the back uh, to pray for you. If you have anything that you want prayer for, again, community project. We don't need to just pray for ourselves on our own. We can ask others to join uh, in that as well. So I encourage you to take advantage of that uh, as we head into this time. Uh, please pray with me as we transition. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the work that you have done on the cross and in your resurrection to make us new, to set us apart, to give us this chance to live uh, in the calling that you have set out for us. Lord, I, I ask that you would remind us that the, that is how you approach us. With love, with a desire to be present with us, uh, with a desire to have community with us and with uh, with our community, not as someone who is angry, not as someone who is vindictive, but as someone who truly loves us and wants us wants the best for us. And Lord, I pray that also we would we would see our community that way. You would help us to um, not be afraid to show our true selves to one another, but to be open and vulnerable and invite the. A uh, group project of accountability as we all work towards living out the true identity you've already given us. In your name we pray. Amen.